The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this very special event. Uh, we are launching the uh, Cambridge Irish Literature in Transition. And you're all very, very welcome indeed. Uh, my name is Jane Olmeyer, and I'm the director of the Trinity Long Room Hub, which is our research institute in the arts and humanities. Um, I'm absolutely delighted that we've got a packed uh, Zoom room uh, for this launch. Uh, I just wish. We all had a glass of wine in our hands, but maybe some of us do. Um, uh, and really, really delighted as well, those who are joining on uh, Facebook, because it really is a moment to uh, celebrate and uh, to congratulate uh, our uh, seven editors of these six amazing volumes. I'll, I, I, I mean, let me just hold them up. There's five of them. I showed you one a moment ago. They really are impressive. Uh, as an editor myself, I, um, I was one of the editors of the Cambridge History of Ireland. We only had four volumes. Uh, uh, we had 101 contributors, where as the, the, the literature in, in transition, um, I think you guys have 121 contributors. Delighted to say that a very high proportion of them, over 40%, are, are women, which is just fantastic. Um, and they hail from I think it's about 60 odd universities around uh, the world um, and they really are multidisciplinary in addition to every uh, imaginal type of literature, uh, we have uh, critical theory, digital humanity, uh, gender, uh, sexuality, folklore, cultural studies, disability studies and I could keep on going. They are a huge triumph. Um, and I suppose before uh, we begin uh, this really, really fabulous celebration this afternoon, I just want to begin by uh, saying congratulations, well done to the editors, well done to all the contributors, but also well done to Cambridge University Press. Um, it really is fantastic to see uh, the investment uh, that the press has made. The, the production values are super. Um, I'm going to encourage you all to buy a copy, as I know others will too, or buy a copy of each of the six volumes. Um, I know our own Cambridge History of Ireland has sold extremely well, and if it's well, this is going to sell even better. Uh, uh, so it, it really is a joy to be here uh, with you all. The format uh, this afternoon is, uh, in a moment, I'm going to hand over to Patricia Coughlin, uh, and uh, then she'll be handing over to Chris Morash. And Chris then will be having a conversation uh, with the editors uh, of the volumes. So hopefully you are going to enjoy the next hour as, uh, as much as I know I am. And uh, hopefully technology as well will behave itself. Uh, but if not, we, we'll carry on uh, regardless. So without further ado, I just want to say congratulations again. Uh, and to hand over to uh, uh, Patricia Coughlin, who of course uh, was Professor of English at UCC and has uh, recently retired. But Pat, uh, uh, over to you. We, you need to, yeah. Thank you very much, Jane. Great. Um, well, I would share and, and endorse everything that Jane has said, and indeed it saves me saying some of the things I was going to. Uh, so, Irish literature in transition is a magnificent achievement. It's innovatively conceived and planned. It's extraordinarily rich and various in its reach and in the inventive ways it populates Now we seem have you have you lost me, Pat? Dear. We lost you. Would you mind starting again? I think that's the easiest, and we'll just do it with audio. If we lose you again, though, we'll go straight okay. to Chris Morash. That's fine. Okay. 
So I was saying that Irish literature in transition is a magnificent achievement. It's innovatively conceived and planned. It's extraordinarily rich and various in its reach and the inventive ways it populates its governing concept with such distinguished teams of editors and contributors. The idea of transition itself, I want to pause on for a moment, it already and boldly indicates the ceaselessness of motion and alteration in cultural expression and experience. <clears throat> An exhilarating part of this is the gauntlet bravely flung down in the, in the face of political history by the editors, the series editors, explicitly challenging periodization according to key events, however cataclysmic. Transitions may be between temporalities or between places. To conceive in this way of the places of Irish literature is already to unsettle notions of fixed origins and identities on which we have depended so much. Thus, for example, spatially, the series takes account not only of global outmigration from the island of Ireland over centuries, but also of the sizable and socially transforming in-migration to that island now. One contributor says he is applying a restive logic to the boundaries of his period itself. And he observes that periods are not bounded containers which serve to confine culture within temporal limits. And I should credit him, that's James Ward at the end of the first volume. And I thought that the editors must have been thinking in that kind of way. The strong underlying perspective of the series is a processual one. It's about becoming and belonging or sometimes not becoming or not belonging, or at least not fully either or both. The range and variety of the material discussed alters from volume to volume with due sensitivity to evolving means and sites of expression and communication. But it is inclusive throughout of far more kinds of text than the gatekeepers used to admit, used to admit to the category of literature. Um, orally transmitted poems and songs, manuscripts, film, all kinds of digital work, theatre in performance particularly, and a wider array of genre, including, for instance, a serious approach to children's literature, are only a few of the kinds of item included and discussed. And there are fine structural analysis of meta-level questions which need to frame any serious approach to literature. For instance, in the contemporary period, Margaret Kelleher discusses how it is funded, where it sits in relation to social realities, whether it's part of government institutions and what that might, might do in, in a good or bad way. Um, I've mentioned the series uh, announced intention to resist the hegemony of mainstream political history. Sorry, Jane. <laughs> Another and somewhat related move follows, which struck me very forcibly the minute I opened it, really. Um, it's implicitly evident throughout the volumes, and this is to relinquish or to step away from what has dominated the discourse of Irish literary history for over 30 years, namely the privileging of post-colonialism as the explanatory model. Reading in these volumes feels to me as if a deep underlying shift is taking place. Not that questions of power and disempowerment and their refraction in literature are being disregarded, but that binaries are being complicated in many careful, subtle and discerning analyses of a wealth of material in all periods. To put it simply, the series opens many prospects for its own eventual successors when it shows that there's more than one Irish story and far more than one way to tell that story. As Eve Patton has eloquently observed, the canon in 1980 at the end of her period was still blighted by repressions and exclusions. And the literature itself was a contingent play above the bedrock of political formations. I mean, the quality of those observations gives you a tiny glimpse of what's evident throughout the, the series. Now, um, there are very many more things I could say <clears throat> about the reach and the, and the inclusive um, character of the volume. Uh, one of the things I would say is that it's, it does look also at how literature can become imbricated with power. Um, it, it can be part, for instance, in the 18th century of the growing project of global modernity. Uh, writers like Goldsmith, Farquhar are discussed and how they are re-envisaged sometimes by, by later, by 20th century others. And also the series takes 
note of the afterlives of cultural objects, objects persisting from the Irish language, as Colleen Parsons notes about the place names transliterated by the Ordnance Survey. Um, I would like to say something especially um, complimentary about the, the, the series, the volume editors, Eric uh, Falsi and Paige Reynolds, who had to tackle the impossible brief of 1980 to 2020. And they did this with élan, with stylishness and with flexibility. Um, and it's very ably negotiated volume with the switchbacks of, of, of the economy and of politics that they had to deal with. It's a triumph, really. One last point from the ending, and I borrow this from Mary Louise Coulihan. She says, points of tr transition are always moving targets. Where we choose to start depends on where we stand in the present. This is not to say that a directionless mutability predominates, but that the relationships of literary scholars with their materials evolve. Such, evolutions, such evolutions are not linear, but plural. And I stop there. And uh, congratulations to everyone concerned. Right. Thanks very much, Pat. Um, I'm going to pick it up from here. I'm just going to say a few words, but then I really want to get down to the main event, which is talking to the editors of this of this marvelous series. Um, when I first heard, I suppose the the title of the series, Irish Literature in Transition. The kind of cynical part of me said, well, when's Irish literature not been in transition? And I think, I mean, what that thought missed was something at an experiential level, what it means to actually grasp transition. And when I look at the final volume in the series, the one that Eric Falchi and Paige Reynolds edited, the one, the one that goes between 1980 and the present, what's really shocking about that volume is just how much 1980 seems like another world, another time. And it's not simply that there are changes that we can trace in a linear fashion over any period of time, whether it was the slow evolution of the northern conflict, the gradual implication of the Irish economy into a global economy. It's been that in that period, there's been a sudden paradigm step shift in the nature of information. Um, it's almost banal to say it, but you know, we would not have been able to do even a few years ago what we're doing here right at this moment, which is launching a book virtually face-to-face -face around the world simultaneously. The kind of transition we're living through at the moment changes not only the past, or not only the future and the present, but also the past. Um, let's think for a moment about the earlier volumes of Irish literature and transition. Moira Hazlitt's really rich volume, one, dealing with the period 1700-1780. Claire Connolly's volume two, which goes in the period 1780 to 1830. Matt Campbell's volume three on the period from 1830 to 1880. It's the information that we have available to look at those periods, whether it's 18th century collections online, the digital newspaper collections, or more specialized sources like the Thomas More Archive, have changed the way in which we write about those periods. But more than that, it's changed who can read about these periods. It means that there are students now all around the world who can access obscure pamphlets, comp comp copies of The Nation, or the novels of a writer like Marianne Sadelier, who was once forgotten and is now discussed around the world because of this new availability of texts. That changes the conversation. When we move to volume four, which is Marjorie Howe's volume on the period from 1880 to 1940, or E. Patton's volume from 1940 to 1980, one of the hallmarks of the essays there, we find this through the whole series as well, is a kind of dense weave of, I suppose, paratextual material. The ephemeral magazines, the pamphlets, the newspaper articles, the manuscripts, all those things that allow us to complicate what had once seemed like really clear linear narratives of historical change. And that's why I suppose I've come to understand the title of this collection in a new way. It's not simply a record of transitions that occurred in the past. It's a record in its own right of a transition that is occurring right now at this moment. A transition that we see not only in novels, plays, poems that are being written here in 2020, but in those that were written in 1720, in 1820. All changing before our eyes, including the past. Uh, so it seems to me there's something very appropriate about launching this book in this very odd way. For the first time in our collective lives, there's a before and after. Somewhere in March, a line was drawn 
we're living transition as rupture in a way that we never have before. And I think these books in this Irish Literature and Transition series can help us learn what it means to live transition. So perhaps in the strangeness of what we're doing here today, we can find an emblem of the series True Project to know what it means in transition, to live in transition. So really what I want to do is really salute all those who made it possible, the editors, the contributors, the series editors, and of course, not least, Ray Ryan and Edgar Mendes at Cambridge University Press, who had the vision and the courage to take on what really is a project of unprecedented scale and ambition in the field of Irish studies. So having said that, let's move on to the people who've made this project a reality. I want to start off by talking to the two series editors, uh, Claire Connolly, who's joining us in University College Cork, and Marjorie Howes, who's with us in Boston College. Um, perhaps I'm going to ask you sort of both the same question, but perhaps Claire first. It's a very general one, but when you were planning this volume, was there a real sense? Were you really conscious of Irish studies undergoing a perceptible transition or multiple transitions? Well, thanks, Chris. Um, it's not so much that we thought that Irish studies was undergoing a set of perceptible transitions, but that Ireland itself was. Uh, and through the period from when we commissioned, uh, began to write, uh, you know, the essays, putting the books together, we saw, uh, you know, unprecedented social change in Ireland, um, so much so that they're almost seem, we almost seem to be endangering, in danger of sort of fostering a new myth about ourselves um, as the kind of the small progressive uh, European country. Uh, and so we, it seemed to us then that when we looked at, across the kind of span of Irish literature, thinking about taking on a series like this, that we needed to account for change, not simply as kind of an abstract concept or indeed a set of definable kind of events that one could line up as so much historical content, as it were, um, and track across the periods, but to really kind of embrace that concept of change and put it to work in our thinking, in our scholarship, in our writing. Uh, and so I suppose what both you and Pat have mentioned, that kind of uh, slipperiness mm. of the concept of transition and the fact that it means, you know, both kind of passage or movement between well-defined states or places, but also a whole kind of much more subtle set of modulations. Um, and where do we look for subtlety, if not to literature uh, and to that rich uh, body of literature, which we're so privileged to, um, to, to work on in, in Irish studies. Uh, and, and so, yes, we began to think about the kind of opportunities of working with uh, this, this concept of, of transition. For me, one really important thing was the question of what simply what one period makes of another. We don't do, you know, we tend to kind of box up um, our, our periods and I suppose we're guilty of a degree of boxing ourselves, uh, but we can still ask questions like what did the 18th century mean to the modernists or uh, what does Emily Lawless mean to, uh, uh, to Anne Enright, you know, and to kind of to, to have uh, an architecture to the books that allowed that kind of those just track those kind of subtle modulations and interconnections. Uh, and I suppose the last thing just to uh, to note on that as well um, is in some ways, and um, I mean, everyone else has spoken so positively about the books, perhaps I'll say one small negative thing, uh, which is that I suppose what we ended up doing was was adopting what might, may indeed look like relatively old fashioned um, uh, literary periodizations, 1700 to 1780, 1780 to 1830, Victorian period and mm. so on, they wouldn't be out of place in the Cambridge Bibliography of English Literature from the 1930s, say. Um, but they do, um, they, they do have a different resonance in Ireland and we haven't given enough time to thinking about those resonances, uh, in particular where they require uh, us to think about the role of language and literature and the aesthetic, I suppose, in in periodization and the way that periodization works. So for me, the first three volumes of the, um, of the series, uh, mine, Moira's and Matt's, all genuinely do something quite new in putting together a kind of an authoritative uh, scholarly overview um, of the 18th century, the Romantic Age, the Victorian Age in Ireland. Uh, whereas the next uh, three volumes then 
get to do the kind of really exciting work of where being able to look back, build on very mature literary critical fields and think about what's new, what's changed, what we can say. So. Mm. Okay, good. I'm going to come back to that periodization question because I think it's a really interesting one. I just want to hand over to Marjorie, who's, uh, who's, who's your co-editor on this. Marjorie, did you have that sense as well of, of, of writing for a changing Ireland? Uh, yes, and I think um, both of Claire and I also had uh, a sense of multiple other kinds of transitions um, that we were, were intermittently um, in our thinking, so I want to mention some of those. Um, Jane Olmeyer mm -hmm. mentioned in her remarks the um, basically transitions in theoretical approach that is taking place in the field of Irish studies where we are no longer in those decades where post-colonial approaches and debates over them were yeah, arguably dominating. So we were very deliberate in our inclusion of everything from disability studies to affect theory to queer theory, eco-criticism, new materialism, and, and, and so on and so on. Um, we were also, I think, very aware of transitions in the field that are happening because of how much material is available to us that can be studied under the heading of Irish literature. Um, and I mean, both in terms of sheer amount, and Chris, you mentioned this in your yeah. remarks, um, but also in terms of its variousness. Um, and I think it really prompted Claire and me to feel forced in a way to kind of reimagine what a survey is. What does it mean to try and survey a field? How can we incorporate all this new material, um, but avoid a kind of merely additive uh, strategy where if you end up referencing, you know, more and more and more texts or more and more and more authors, space constraints mean you can actually say less and less about them. So we really kind of were trying to grapple um, with that uh, challenge. And I think one of the things that we arrived at was um, a focus on, okay, we don't want to map where the field has been, and we're not even really trying to map where the field is right now. We want to map where it's going, right? Mm -hmm. What's emerging? Um, and I think one thing that meant was um, we wanted a survey that could be um, authoritative and persuasive, but we also wanted it to find ways of looking beyond itself and imagining alternative mappings and future work um, that might you know, be provoked or build on um, what, what we did. So that's a reason why we organized them around sort of competing and even in some cases contradictory arguments, approaches, and uh, principles. So there's lots of different ways of dividing up the volumes like genre, author, theme, right? Um, and we didn't want to choose one. We wanted to combine them and thereby give a sense of um, kind of almost the volumes we didn't produce and what some of the other alternatives uh, would have been. Um, and then just in a final sense of transition, um, I just want to mention the state of publishing today and to echo what Chris said and add my thanks to Cambridge um, mm. for taking this project on and in particular to Ray Ryan. Um, whose idea it was and who came to Claire and me uh, and gave us the chance to do it. Good. I'm, I'm going to go back to Claire now just to maybe to talk about your, your, your own volume. And I just want to pick up something you were talking about and Pat mentioned this as well, that this, I mean, you just use Pat's phrase, really throws down the gauntlet to traditional periodization. I mean, we think we know periodization in Irish history before and after the Union, post-independence, post-Good Friday Agreement. In your volume, which runs from 1780 to 1830, the Act of Union is right in the middle there. Um, did that pose challenges? I mean, it was obviously a deliberate choice. What sort of challenges did that pose? I suppose I began to think um, in relation to the series as a whole, uh, but especially my own volume, that we've been a little bit too respectful of the um, lines laid down by uh, political history in particular. And I do mean a very sort of narrow gauged, um, you know, deep grooved kind of political history. Uh, and there is a privilege in being able to sort of um, uh, read and understand Irish literature in relation to those always like fast moving and very dynamic set of debates in, in and of themselves. That, that's important to say. 
but it also means that we lose sight of certain things. And I began to really think in relation to my own volume, 1780 to 1830, that one of the things we'd fallen, a, a, a problem that we had fallen into was kind of assuming that Irish literature is, was, and always will be a thing, a sort of a recognizable, definable mm. uh, body of work and knowledge, which one can um, uh, debate or whatever. And in fact, I mean, I suppose I would say this, but I think my own volume, um, the 1780 to 1831, has a kind of a special place in the story we tell about Irish literature, because when you think about it, in 1780, um, what Irish literature is or was or might be was very much up for debate. Um, it was perfectly possible to assert, as people were still doing by 1830, that that term, Irish literature, ought to be preserved for literature in the Irish language. And, you know, sometimes people said that and they were not very complimentary about that literature, monkish folios or chronicles of savagery and, and so on. Um, or whereas you have then somebody like the, um, call him folklorists, uh, anthropologist, Thomas Crofton Croker coming along and saying, well, there is a sort of a field, if you like. Um, he says, we could call it Hibernian Belle Lettre. Uh, and you have the kind, and two very kind of important things come together across my period. One is the relatively new idea of the nation, that nations are distinct, that they have their own culture. Um, and the other is the relatively new idea of imaginative writing as a discrete body of uh, work that could be set apart from others, what Raymond Williams calls the creative idea. Mm. Uh, and so, uh, that I think to track that is really important and you know we know lots about Mariah Edgeworth or Thomas Moore or Lady Morgan or whatever in that period but we don't quite see that shifting field that they're that they're working within and against uh, and th and then finally I suppose the other thing we note if we take this approach and this came through to me very strongly was that by 1830 and into um, Matt's period then we also have people using um, the term very negatively uh, or wanting to say things like uh, to, to make distinctions as to what is say a native literature or a Celtic literature that term starts to then be then be used mm. and that becomes a way of excluding mm. and in fact um, diminishing some of the great reputations that had flourished for example Edgeworth. Yeah I think that, yeah I think that's, that's really really useful in some ways just back over to Marjorie you were almost dealing with a almost the opposite problem in some ways in that this period in the, in the volume you edited the period from 1880 to, to 1940 is the one that sort of most people think they know and it's and there are the big the dominating figures there there's Yates and Joyce how did you how did you approach shifting that shifting our perception of that yeah um and I did think a lot about uh the fact that this is the the most researched uh period it's the famous period and it's the scholarship on it has, or our understanding of the period mm. has really been profoundly marked by the prominence of some of these very famous uh, writers. Mm. Um, and that, that prominence, by the way, is deserved, right? Yeah. Like Yates and, and, and Joyce. Mm. So, um, and um, if I could just extend your question a little further, even the other thing that's connected to what, what you were saying that I thought a lot about was that um, in some important respects, this period really sees the beginning of the cultural and academic institutions that enable mm -hmm. and produce formal scholarship on Irish literature and on Irish studies. So in a sense, the discipline is emerging as a discipline uh, during mm -hmm. this period. Um, and I think one thing that happened then was that vocabularies and concepts that would come to define the way we think about this period or thought about it for a long time were often produced by these very important creative writers who also produced many many other kinds of texts you know literary criticism and theory or autobiography or journalism you know political um mm. pamphlets and so on right um, and that state of affairs is in fact uh highlighted in the way i organized um the volume and I also was interested in, I guess, two different kinds of response um, to that state of affairs. First of all, in discussions of the major figures, um, which, you know, I, I thought we have, we have to have them, right? They have to be here. <laughs> um, I wanted essays that didn't necessarily 
accept the vocabularies and concepts that the literary giants themselves offered them. The essays mm -hmm. tended to craft their own terms. And in some sense, I wanted them to contest in some cases, what the major literary figures had to say about themselves or about the literary landscape generally. So kind of wresting the period um, away from some of those really important voices who shaped our sense of it uh, so powerfully. And then second, I wanted other aspects of the volume to go beyond the revival, beyond the better known uh, writers, to give a sense of this, what we've been talking about, this expanded range of, of and diversity um, of the literature of the period. Um, and what I wanted at the same time to convey that in doing this, the volume wasn't sort of discovering that kind of diversity for the first time. It was actually in many cases restoring a sense of variousness that was actually apparent to contemporary mm. observers and then kind of got written out a little bit in the intervening uh, century. Yeah, I think, and, and that's really apparent here. I mean, that, and, and I think what's that's produced is a real depth and a real texture to this volume that really, I think, does change the way we look at that that period. That it's a period that we think we know. Um, I, I'm going to I'm going to move on now. I think from our from our series editors. So thank, thanks very much, uh, uh, Claire and Marjorie. Um, and start to restore a little bit of chronological sequence here by going back to the very first volume. Um, and this is, we're going over to Moira Hazlitt in, in Queens, in Belfast. Uh, Moira edited the, uh, the first volume in 1700, 1780. And I, I want to just pick up something in some ways that Marjorie was talking about in some ways, in that when you look at your volume, the definition of what constitutes literature is much more fluid. We have essays on people like Burke and Molyneux and, you know, other writers who could just as easily be in a, you know, an Irish philosophy in transition series. Um, were you conscious of having this much more fluid definition of the literary in the period? And how did that shape the volume? Oh, well, well, definitely. You know, um, I think in the 18th century, there's a sense in which literature is actually quite simply what gets printed. Um, and that very few writers in this period would have had a conception of themselves as being a novelist or a poet. Um, Probably it's different for dramatists, maybe, uh, but actually the writers are writing an astonishing range of uh, modes and genres, not just philosophy, but, you know, politics, mm -hmm. economics, theological controversy and so on. Um, this is the period of the pamphlet, you know, there's a fantastic culture of pamphlets in the 18th century Ireland, and quite a lot of the essays actually might be looking at novels that are actually drawn upon pamphlets as well, because their authors are writing pamphlets simultaneously with writing the novels. Um, if I take a really you know, but it's not just about writing different modes, even the literary works themselves are inflected by all these diverse interests. Um, you know, if I took a really, maybe it's an extreme example, you know, we could take someone like the, the novelist, Thomas Amory. He's an Irish fiction writer of the mid-century, and he publishes three novels in the 1750s and 1760s. And there's a huge array of material in those uh, fictions. So he's writing about theological controversy. He's writing about philosophy. He's writing about science. He's writing a lot about math. Um, so there's mm. that there. And then there was also the sense that, you know, to want to reflect work currently underway and really some of the excitement of current work. And that had to include work on the Irish Enlightenment because there's been a lot of really interesting work in that domain recently, you know, asking about the Irish Enlightenment, how might we define it, how important was it? And I think if you think about the kinds of questions that we're asking of our Irish Enlightenment philosophers, questions about, you know, how do we, how do we come to know the world? How do we see the world? How do we respond to other people? Um, modes of feeling, like all kinds of ways actually that are not limited to the domain of philosophy that actually literature is exploring exactly these same things as well. So, I mean, that may be a very 18th century view. So maybe this is a volume, you know, created in the image of the 18th century, but I wouldn't be, uh, I would make no apologies about that. Yeah, and I think, I mean, the volume really captures the richness of that period, and particularly the way in which, you know, you say pamphlets, and there are pamphlets talking to one another, and they're talking to one another in this volume. Now, it's a very exciting volume. I'm going to, I'm going to move over now, move on a little bit into the, into the 19th century to, to Matt Campbell, who's joining us in New York. Um, Matt, 
I've labored a little bit in the field of 19th century Irish writing myself, and I know, you know, it's sometimes a bit of an unloved period. I mean, it's sometimes seen as the kind of the waiting room for the revival. Um, but you have a real sense of the, not just potential, but the kind of excitement of this period. Um, how'd you go about that? How did you, what was the approach you took to try and capture that sense of the real value of the period in its own terms? I think I can talk about the value of it to pick up the kind of couple of things that, that I heard from Claire was talking about and to bring that on a bit is you can't have literature without a language and that the mm. language that literature that was written in, in in Ireland through the 19th century, there were two languages that were it was being written in throughout the 19th century, uh, picking up both the Irish language and also the English language. And the point at which the English language meets with the Irish language, it's again one of the big transitional things that happened in that particular period. Mm. So if you're thinking, Chris, from your question about the, what the potential is, well, the potential is there whenever you get this kind of a clash, which was mm. happening between the dominant English language and then the Irish language as well, too. And behind the notion of literature and language, there's also the question of writing and then ultimately print and mm. language. And again, mm -hmm. the 19th century is an age of mass print and indeed mm -hmm. of mass literacy. Um, and the levels of literacy in Ireland, as indeed with the rest of Europe, increased incredibly. But at the same time, as the literacy increased in the press in the dominant languages of uh, Ireland and Britain and Europe, um, but also at the same time in the so-called minority languages as well, that persisted and it kept coming. So one of the extraordinary things that happened through the 19th century is that both of these things were in dialogue with each other really, both the Irish and the English. And what happened when you put these two things in dialogue with each other, as they met a catastrophic event, and one of the reasons why it could be that 19th century writing, or one of the reasons that people have always said about 19th century Irish writing, yeah. is that it is kind of, as you say, overlooked or unloved, is because mm. something absolutely catastrophic happened in the middle of the 19th century. Yeah. And the famine is something which both the, uh, the repercussions for the Irish language were immense, but also for the English language as well too. And I don't need to tell anybody that whenever you get a great ecological crisis or indeed a biological crisis, which attacks a society, um, you have to look at your governments and to see how they're managing that particular crisis. And indeed, one of the things that the 19th century tells us is that you need to manage that very well in order to look after the culture of the society that you have with you. The a population, maybe a million people died in the famine the population of Ireland halved by the end of the 19th century. So the writing that comes out of that has previously been thought about as being silent or just not there or people stopping writing, a kind of a great cultural hiatus. You and many other people know that that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. That on the other hand, there's an extraordinary amount of writing and that that writing took place both in the cities um, where, the, where the presses were um, and then it also took place across the world where all the immigrants went to because, of course, the great scattering or the diaspora of uh, Irish culture is a great scattering from the 19th century, primarily to America, but also to Australia, to Africa and indeed to India as well, too. And my volume ends up thinking about Kipling in India and thinking about what, was, what it is that were going on there as the Irish were. On the one hand, they were out working for the British Empire, um, but in another way, what they were doing was spreading this kind of global Irishness across the world. And so you get the sense of these uh, extraordinary events that are happening, uh, both in the transition from one language to another, the transition from spoke for, to a mass print and a mass literacy. But of course, the background for this, for the study of English literature, is usually the Victorian novel. And it doesn't look like, and many people have said it doesn't look like there's a Victorian novel coming out of Ireland, but there are extraordinary things coming out of Ireland. Extraordinary writing that's coming out of both poetry and fiction and drama. Dion Boussicot, for instance, uh, would, would easily be the, the, the most, uh, the best-selling uh, playwright of the 19th century. And then gradually, of course, this would move itself across to America, where you got, um, a, we have a chapter in the, in the, in the book about 19th century uh, American, Irish American fictions. And it's quite extraordinary the amount of publishing that was going on in the States mm. at the time. So I think that what we've got is something which we recognize nowadays. It looks like a global picture. It looks like something which is partly a modern picture, what looks like a modern world, but at the same time, 
we have this famine in the background, which looks like a reminder that maybe we're not as modern as we thought we were. Mm. There's a number of things there we could pick up if we had the time, but just to, just to point out just the kind of continuities that run through this series where, you know, you talk about material culture and the way in which the, 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 you know, the great changes in print culture that happened in the middle of the 19th century that maps onto the sort of thing uh, Maura was talking about in terms of the 18th century. It goes forward to the sort of thing that Marjorie was talking about in, in the early 20th century period. And I think, you know, one of the things about this series is that there are strands that run in a kind of linear fashion through this. I think one of the great pleasures for a lot of readers is going to be following those lateral strands that run from volume to volume. And I think, you know, you've picked just that one up very well. The globalization uh, strand is, is, is yet another. Thanks. Um, I, I'm going to move on to, to Eve, who's, uh, who's from uh, Trinity College Dublin, my colleague in Trinity. Um, Eve edited the volume from 1940 to 1980. Um, and I couldn't help think about, you know, well, this time last year, we were in the, physically in the long room, oh, actually, we were in the Burke Theatre, uh, talking about Field Day. And if this volume had been edited in 1980 or even 1990, it would have been, I suppose, dominated by Northern Ireland. And yet, you know, that it's there, but it's not there. Do you want to talk about how in this volume that goes from 1940 to 1980, you negotiated that tricky issue of the politics that are there in, well, in the foreground a lot of times? Uh, yeah, no, thank you, Chris. And I think that that's a good place to start. As you said at the beginning, 1980 seems a very long time ago. Mm. Um, and one of the benefits of, of working on this volume now is we have that tremendous hindsight uh, that I think is part of that sense of one period reflecting on another with a bit of distance. Mm. Uh, I think for me that the challenge of this time period uh, was really to try to um, subvert perceptions of the middle decades of the 20th century as this dull interlude which is strung out between all the excitement of the revival and high literary modernism and Joyce in, in the early part of the century and then nothing much happened and then of course the troubles and the trauma that really mobilizes a new generation of writers. So I wanted to work against that idea because of course all kinds of exciting things, experimental things happened in literature and culture in Ireland in this middle period and in both languages, uh, as Matt was saying, you know, the, the fact is that, that very often, as we see in this volume, what was happening in the Irish language was streets ahead in what it was doing uh, uh, from, from, from what was happening in English. Um, so I was very keen to work against uh, that, that perception of Ireland coming out of the emergency with, uh, and there's a great phrase from Cyril Connolly, uh, with its newspapers full of nothing. Um, Irish newspapers full of nothing is I think a slightly older way of, of thinking about this period. Mm. So instead of those ruling ideas of stagnation uh, and uh, uh, um, alienation, I wanted to think about an Ireland that in fact was very richly plugged in. Um, mm. And one of the things that this volume looks at is how Ireland related to Europe. Ironically, yeah. a question that of course we've come back to a lot recently mm. Um, but we worked very hard, I think, the, the contributors who respond to this, to try to reestablish very important intellectual and artistic connections, um, the, the kind of synapses that, that drove Irish culture, but were coming in from a wider sense of what Europe was mm. in this very, very volatile period. And of course, figures uh, such as Sean O'Fuelan, but many others, such as Dorothy McArdle, who were responding to a post-war European landscape, um, and, and, and everything that it, that it had mobilized, the refugees, the displaced people, that sense of passage coming through Ireland and beyond. Um, this is what really drove this period for me and, and makes it very exciting. Um, so I think that was really the first thing that I was able to do with this volume because it wasn't 1980. And I think yeah. you're quite right to, to mm. pick on that. Um, but I think, uh, and this will pick up on what all the contributors, I think, have said, we also have that tremendous sense of the work that has been done since. A lot of people listening today will have been those labourers in libraries and archives who have recovered voices uh, that are not simply those of the great peerless Beckett and so on in the middle century, mm. uh, but the, the voices that we, we thought we'd lost, particularly of 
the middle-brow writers, uh, the writers who respond to ordinariness, like Walter Macken, for example, mm. like the poet Rita Lawton. So I'm very pleased that the volume has managed to turn around, I think, perceptions of, of this time and given us something new. Mm. And I think, you know, just I mean, one of the things you're saying there, and just going back to Matt as well, you really get a sense of these volumes as of their time. You know, talking about the connection with Europe and, you know, in the context of Brexit, Matt talking about how governments respond to natural disasters. And, you know, we, we all know about that at the moment. That these, these volumes are very much about our present moment as much as, as, as they're about, say, 1940 or 1840. Um, I want to move on to, to uh, the editors of the final two volumes, um, Eric Falshi, who's in, 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 in California, Berkeley, uh, and Paige Reynolds in Holy Cross. Um, and so two editors, I'm going to ask them each question. Um, I, I just, I suppose, first of all, uh, Eric, um, you, you edit the volume that deals with this period in 1980 to 2020. And I don't think, you know, it's very difficult to get purchase on the most recent past. You know, quite often that's material that has the shortest shelf life. And I think Pat paid tribute quite justly to what you and Paige have done here. Um, how did you go about getting that perspective to write or to edit a book on where we're standing at the moment? Thanks, Chris. Um, yeah, I th it, that was a major challenge. And I think one of the ways that we started, that we thought about it from the beginning was just simply to kind of make that a strength of the book, or at least a kind of a, um, a method by which the book worked, that we would never be able to avoid the fact that we were trying to survey a field while standing in, in the tall grasses in the field. And so I don't think, um, I don't think it was ever the case where we were going to try to present some sort of authoritative account in a kind of expected way of the present. Um, one of the interesting things that our, that our book chapters ended up doing, and we didn't, we didn't pre-plan this, um, but that our, that our chapters ended up doing, that our contributors ended up focusing on, was the way in which contemporary writers are continually kind of rethinking the past, in term, you know, past writers and, and, and the, the, the past of Ireland. And that became a kind of running theme in the book. And one of the ways to understand the book um, as a kind of um, scholarly project is it almost kind of inverts that gesture right it kind of has, it's in this impossible position of trying to um trying to kind of take hold of the present and imagine that it's kind of the past so that you can at least see it clearly enough right to kind of say something about it um and what, what i found really kind of exciting was that the, the, the present just kept kind of busting in right i mean even in the process of writing like you know every rep every reference in the book by any contributor to brexit um, at whatever stage it was at, we always, like, these were kind of just like always triply asterisks because we knew we would have to change them, you know, up until the moment of the proofs, really. Um, yeah. And so I think we tried to make that kind of, we tried to kind of catch our, our contributors um, using that as kind of a catalytic tension rather than kind of something paralyzing. So that, yeah, I mean, so that there's always the problem of someone, you know, you know, back to Levis and new bearings in English literature when he says that the great the great poets of the of the of the twentieth century are you know Pound, Eliot, Yeats, and Ronald Botrall, who you know didn't quite make it in the mix, right? But, but so that's always kind of a, a problem for someone for anyone who works on the contemporary. And I think the way we tried to um, counter that, or at least kind of you know work with that, is to make the 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 I I don't know the, the work that the that the volume did not one of kind of <laughs> you know, setting up the lead tables in terms of who's most important and who's who's yeah. going to be last, but to kind of make our work um, so that the, the the methods and the archives and the kind of context that the contributors presented would remain authoritative, even if even if the kind of judge in any particular judgment, um, you know, that any particular poet or novelist or dramatist isn't actually all that interesting fifty years down the line. It, it'll be interesting to look back and say how and see how they fit into the field at this moment when this yeah. moment is still kind of a present moment. Um, and so, I, you know, I think, you know, and one of the ways that this kind of was kind of concretized for me at least was from the very beginning, I don't remember exactly, and Paige might be able to say more, when we first were kind of thinking about this project and we were looking at the date, you know, the date spans and they were all these nice round numbers, you know, um, 1780 to 1830 and so on. Um, and the, the one, our volume was something like, um, 1980 to 2015, or it was, you know, whatever kind of was the nearest, <laughs> you know, five or zero to the present. Yeah, and we just, sort of said, <laughs> yeah, we just sort of said, well, like, what if we just go to 2020? And we almost kind of figured that the books would be published likely in 2019, 
or early in 2020. So the, the book, even the date range would kind of perform the kind of impossible task that the, that the, that the, that the essays try to kind of capture and catch, which is to kind of say something interesting about the present while the present kind of keeps happening um, and, you know, as it goes on. And so I think that was one of the exciting things about the book. And so it's both, it was both something that we took really seriously and also realized that like it wasn't, things were gonna, you know, the world's changed a lot <laughs> since the books, since like we lost last all the books and the proofs. And so I think that's, we, we tried to make that a strength of the book. And I think our contributors did an amazing job of kind of gathering all of this material that's kind of in mid motion and trying to make sense of, of, of their material without kind of saying, and here's how it's gonna be forever, right? And, just, and so I think one of the ways that our volume um, is maybe kind of transitional is that it becomes an object um, it becomes kind of an object of transition itself. And so one of the hopes is, is that, it, that it becomes generative for, for scholars going forward. Like, you know, here's, here's some ways that we might think about the ever-shifting present. Yeah, I, there's a phrase you use that I love and I'm gonna, I'm gonna borrow copiously, which is trying to imagine the present as the past. I like that. Um, it's good. The very, very, very last question I want to ask is, is Paige Reynolds in, in, in Holy Cross. And in some ways it's the toughest question really. Um, you know, imagine it's 20 years down the road, 2040, and you get a, you get a phone call from uh, Ray Ryan saying, look, we're going to do volume seven of Irish literature in transition, 2020 to 2040. <laughs> what does it look like just based on what volume six is concerned with? Yeah, no, it's actually a really a fun question, right? I mean, it also lets me indulge in a new genre, which is speculative literary criticism. So yeah. um, start there, right? Um, you know, obviously it's going to cover an exciting range of new voices and new approaches and, you know, and even new genres. It's going to track Ireland's and Northern Ireland's changing relationship with the globe, with Europe, with each other. So I think the things we would come to expect would be really important. But if I did have the opportunity to do something like that, I think one of the things I would do based on what we found very noisily in volume six, but throughout the entire collection and everyone's amazing, um, book is this idea, again, to go back to what Eric was saying about how tradition works, you know, because I think mm -hmm. in the next four decades or two decades or whatever, we've tracked out Morris over the, in the six volumes from 1700, right? And you find all these new and surprising tr transitions that you didn't expect, right? So I've been watching from the States in my house, right? How the Porch Festival amazingly turned it around and democratize the opportunity that say my students here in the States had to see contemporary writers reading. You know, they wouldn't be able to travel and see that. So you have the wonderful gestures of, you know, the Abbey's Dear Ireland series, or even the British mm -hmm. Association of Irish Studies Conference. And the way that the digital democratizes that has been enormously exciting. But I also think that any of us who has done any digital teaching over the past semester understands you lose something really magical. And, you know, having mm -hmm. spent part of my career thinking about people in shared space and time and the importance of that, I think that kind of remains an interesting question for the coming decades, right? As we are forced mm -hmm. to rely on Amazon and Zoom and Blackboard or whatever sort of platforms we have, how does that change our experience with writing, with each other, with audience? Um, and so that I think would be one thread I would be interested in seeing pulled in, in a future volume. Um, I think the other one I might tease out would be a question of human rights. Because even though we're not supposed to talk about Irish exceptionality and the progressive small Ireland in Europe, I, as an American, I'm all about that logic, right? <laughs> historical moment, the progressive small Ireland is what gets me out of bed in the morning. And so the idea of sort of looking at how the wonderful things that happened that we were able to identify the cusp of in our volume, right? Um, and here I'm thinking of the digital advocacy that we saw in the repeal movement, right? Or, or with direct vision and the work that say performance poetry has done and sort of promulgating and promoting those concerns and issues. I'm thinking about the wonderful digital humanities um, initiatives in various institutions that are focused on climate and climate change, like at UCD and UCC. I'm thinking even about texts like Blind Boy's memoir or um, Fanning's Mind on Fire that are drawing our attention in kind of new genres, right, to the question of male mental health, right, something that's really gone unspoken. Um, in a kind of explicit way, right? So, you know, it's, it's been, I think, an exciting moment in the contemporary to see that kind of quest to use literature and performance and the arts and the digital to, and this sounds cheesy, but to make the world a better place, right? And I do think that Ireland and contemporary Irish literature in many ways has had a kind of noisy impulse 
um, to do just that, that, that I would like to be able to talk about, not just as a way of understanding the next four decades of writing, but of understanding the important work that literature and performance and art and art institutions can generally do to advocate that. Because, you know, in kind of quick closing, to, you know, to point out that we are in a moment, I think, at, you know, we all recognize in which the notion of Irish literature in a kind of global critical moment, right? Or the idea of Irish studies as a kind of institutional imperative, if not in Ireland, more generally across the globe, are under threat, or the humanities are under threat, or even books, mm -hmm. right? Are kind of, it feels like we have to fight really hard for the very things that we're talking about in all six of these volumes. And I do think it would be neat to use that volume as an opportunity to kind of exercise our capacity to do just that, right? What's the value of close, critical, deep reading with a book of things that may seem arcane and, you know, from 1750 to our students, right? But in fact, can tell us a great deal about how to be better citizens now. Um, so it's a little bit utopian, but I think that would be sort of, you know, the, the engine of my charge. And I also just quickly wanted to use a brief self-promotional moment to say we actually have a volume called The New Irish Studies from Cambridge coming out this summer that will pick up on some of these issues. Um, so, you know, it is, I think, again, as people have said, a really exciting moment to see Cambridge kind of doubling down on the value of, of Irish literature for, for readers. That's great. I think I think we all need a little bit of the utopian right now, and that's, right. I think that's a great vision of, of Irish studies for the future. Um, I just want to just want to thank all the editors. I mean, you've just really given us a sense of just the excitement of these volumes, the thought that's gone into them, but just also the complexity of them and the complexity of the narratives that are produced, the multiple narratives that are produced by moving away from the sense that there is one story to multiple stories. And I think I think readers are going to find that these are very rich in a different way to, to, to things that they've experienced in the past, just because of the interplay of all these multiple narratives. Um, I'm going to hand back to Jane now, and I think Jane is going to do the honors to to, to send us back off to our homes. <laughs> Chris, what an after, I mean, the past hour has just been riveting, and you've probably been following the chat function. Just loads and loads of congratulations and compliments. It's been inspiring, insightful, passionate. I mean, just a cracking hour of conversation. Uh, there's also been a great, sadly, we don't have time for questions, but if you look at the Q&A, there's a great discussion going on uh, around periodization. And just in defense of the historians, the Cambridge History of Ireland, we eschewed the uh, uh, traditional political narrative there very consciously too. So, so I think, you know, there's a lot of room for a great discussion, great debate. I loved reading uh, these volumes. They're absolutely fantastic. And again, just to encourage people to read them, to buy them, um, uh, they, they, they just are fabulous. So I just want to wrap things up by first uh, a quick announcement and then a few words of thanks. The announcement is the Trinity Long Room Hub continues to operate in the pandemic, uh, during the pandemic. Um, we have a fabulous um, uh, five week workshop series with Columbia in New York on rethinking the pandemic. And the one next Wednesday is uh, uh, the pandemic without a public sphere. And we've got three fabulous speakers, uh, Fintan O'Toole from our own parish, and then Melody Barnes, uh, who was an advisor to Obama, who runs the Democracy Initiative at Virginia, and uh, Bill Emmett, who uh, former editor of The Economist. So do join us for that. Details on the Hub website. And then just to simply thank everybody, I'd like to begin though by thanking our technical team at the Trinity Long Room Hub, especially Francesca and Aoife. Yeah, really. Uh, they're amazing. Um, and obviously the wind is starting to get up here in, I'm in Northwest Donegal. And I can tell you in the next hour, my Wi-Fi is gonna go. Um, but you know, these ladies just do a fabulous, fabulous job. I also would love to thank everybody who's joined us this afternoon. We have had over 200 people in the Zoom uh, room who have been coming from all over the world. We can see from the names you're joining us uh, literally from around the world. I am particularly jealous of the bubbles that are being opened in Cornwall. Uh, hopefully though, everybody will be able to go celebrate uh, appropriately at now uh, in the comfort of your own living rooms, dining rooms, porches, wherever you all are. So thank you for joining us. 
above all, thank you to our speakers. Chris, as usual, you did a fantastic job curating the conversation, uh, but it really was, I think, the insights, the passion, um, and the inspiration um, that our speakers, the editors of these volumes have brought. And just simply, once again, many, many, many congratulations, everybody. I'm sorry we're not in Dublin, in Cork, in London. But you know what? Maybe it's very special too. And we'll all remember the launch of the Cambridge uh, 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 Irish Literature in Transition volumes. So anyway, on that note, if we can just thank everybody as we cut in, in customary uh, uh, fashion and uh, uh, say goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye and stay well. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures. Stamping provenance Languages towards the history to of the Time Warrior Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.